Thanks, Ben. Thanks, guys, for reading. Um, do make sure you can see James uh, chapter 4 in front of you. Um, uh, ben has prayed, so we're going to crack on. And as we do, I just want uh, you to think about a question as we start, and that is, um, how would someone that you know well describe you? How would someone that you know well describe you? Think of a friend or, or a family member or a colleague. How would they sum you up uh, as they look at the way that you live, the things that you do? How would they describe you? Uh, maybe you can uh, share that with each other after the service. Uh, but to put it a little bit differently, uh, how would somebody explain you? How would they explain your life? As they look at you, the way that you live, the things that you say and do, what, what explanation would they give? If you've been with us uh, over the last few weeks looking at this series in James, you might remember that I asked that same question uh, a few weeks ago. How would someone explain your life? I asked it that because throughout his letter, James has been showing us, hasn't he, time and time again, that what's on the inside will always show itself on the outside in the way that we live. So if you can remember right back to chapter 1, he explained that as God's word is planted in us, it produces a a new life, a a new way of living. We become, he said, a kind of first fruits of all that God has created. And then we saw him say something very similar in chapter 3. This time he spoke about God's wisdom rather than his word, But his point was exactly the same. He said, as we receive God's wisdom, wisdom that's from above, our lives will produce a harvest of righteousness. In other words, the the visible fruit of God's wisdom in us will be an outward life of peace and mercy, of humility and love. What's on the inside will always show itself on the outside in the way that we live. But then there's been this problem. The problem has been that for James's readers, that doesn't seem to be the case. Alongside this godly wisdom from above, we've seen another kind of wisdom in the letter, a worldly wisdom that produces a very different kind of life. And so favoritism, destructive speech, Fighting, quarreling, those are all the fruits, the results of this worldly wisdom. And the really big problem for James is that he sees those things in the church, in the lives of believers. James can see the fruit of worldly wisdom in the lives of Christians. And so he writes this letter largely as a warning, a sort of wake-up call to those who are moving further and further from the gospel, further and further from the godly wisdom that should be shaping their lives. And what we've got here in chapter 4 and into chapter 5 is, I suppose, a ramping up of that warning. In these verses, James focuses on two types of people. Two types of people who he says are displaying the, the fruit of this worldly wisdom. And he wants to warn us against that kind of life. And so the first one we're going to look at is there at the end of chapter 4. And that is the self-sufficient boaster. The self-sufficient boaster. Look at uh, chapter 4, verse 13 with me. James says, Now listen, 
You who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. James is talking uh, to the people who are the merchants, the traders of his day, the, the businessmen in the world. Uh, these are the people who arrive at a, a new city or a port and they do some business, they, they make some money, uh, and then they move on to the next money-making opportunity. Uh, that's who James has in his sights. Uh, however, for us now, I think we can broaden that out to anyone really who likes to make plans. Uh, that might be career plans, it, it might be holiday plans, it could be family plans. Uh, James says, if you're a planner then you need to listen. And his point is going to be that, that making plans, that, that's not a bad thing for us to do. But he says there is a dangerous attitude, a worldly wisdom that can come when it, we think about planning. That worldly wisdom can be seen in two wrong views. First, a wrong view of the future. James says in verse 14, you're busy making all these plans, but you do not even know what will happen tomorrow? He says you might be planning your next career move. You might be saving for your next big holiday. You might have checked the stock exchange or your weather app for this week. But the reality is you really have no idea what's going to happen. You don't know what will happen tomorrow, let alone next week or next month or next year. You see, as Christians... We know where our ultimate future is headed, don't we? We know that God is in complete control of everything. And we know our final destination. We know those things because God has revealed them to us in his word. But what we don't know, what God hasn't told us and doesn't tell us, is what will happen tomorrow. We can know and trust God in tomorrow. We can know the future is in his hands. But we don't know what tomorrow will look like. And that, if you're anything like me, presents us with a big problem. The big problem is we really don't like not knowing, do we? We, we hate the feeling of being out of control, of not being in the know. And so often my response, I guess lots of our responses, is to act as though we do know. To kid ourselves that we do have control. And so we plan and, and we plot and we schedule and we strategize. But then what happens when those plans don't work out? What happens when our carefully crafted schedule is interrupted? We struggle, don't we? We don't cope so well. At worst, we feel like the universe is somehow kind of falling around, down around us because, well, we did everything right. We, we planned, and our plan made so much sense. We, we accounted for everything. So, so how come it's not working out? How come it's not going the way we thought it would? And to us, James says, wake up. Wake up. Your smartphone might make you feel like you know all things. Your calendar might make you feel like you have some element of control. But you don't. You don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. 
Beware an arrogant view of the future. And then James says, beware an arrogant view of your life. Look at verse 14. He says, what is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. I remember my mum used to say to me fairly regularly, Matt, the problem is you think you're invincible. I think that's something that uh, mums say to their teenage sons, largely because uh, teenage boys genuinely do think they are invincible. They, they go to places and do things uh, with this kind of complete confidence that absolutely nothing bad will, go, will happen. And if it does, well, it'll work out okay in the end. I'll, I'll be fine. Uh, we grow up a little bit and become a bit more risk-averse. But I think we still tend to live with that kind of general assumption, don't we, that we'll wake up tomorrow and life will just happen. Things will be all right, probably. More than that, we live in a culture that really doesn't like to talk about death. It's the big taboo in our society. It's the conversation stopper if you bring it up. We don't like to talk about it, but then we're shocked. That's why we're shocked when we hear about Kobe Bryant or Caroline Flack. We wonder, how could death come to someone so strong, someone so successful? But again, James says, you need to wake up. Wake up because life is fleeting. It's temporary. Like the morning mist on your, wind, on your car windscreen, you're here a little while and then you're gone. And so the problem here isn't making plans. No, no the problem is planning with this arrogant attitude that, that life will just go on as we thought it would, as we planned it would. It's the belief that we are in complete control of tomorrow. And so James says in verse 15, what you ought to say is, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. In other words, it's absolutely fine to make plans. It is fine to think carefully about the future. But we should do those things with a humility and an awareness that they are entirely dependent upon God's will. The reality of our plans depends not on our calendar, but on God's. And the nature of our plans should depend on God as well. Look at verse 17. James says, If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. If we, are, if we know God, then we also know God's will. He's revealed it to us in his word. He's shown us his plans and his priorities for his world. We've even had a glimpse of some of those plans and priorities in this letter, haven't we? Um, back in chapter 1, verse 27, James said this, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. God has clearly shown us his priorities for his people. He has shown us how we should use our time and our money. Those things are not unclear. 
And so James says, if you find yourself thinking, well, I'm sorry, but my diary is just too full for me to love my brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm just too busy to kind of get involved with those needy people at church. My job is too full on for me to give any real time to my family or or to my relationship with Jesus. If those are things that you think and say, then James says that is arrogant and it is sinful. If you know the good you ought to do, but your personal plans and priorities stop you doing those things, well then James says that is sin for you. And you need to wake up. So that's the self-sufficient boaster. And then at the start of chapter 5, his focus shifts to another kind of person. The self-indulgent hoarder. It's worth just saying as we come to chapter 5 that there's a little bit of disagreement as to who James is speaking to in these verses. Is he talking to rich people in general? Or is he talking specifically to rich unbelievers? Personally, I think he's probably talking to rich unbelievers in this little section. There's just a few reasons for that. First, he completely drops that affectionate brotherly, sisterly language that he's been using throughout the letter that we've we've noticed as we've gone through. And second, because as you'll notice, there's no call to repentance in these verses. There's no call for people to come back to the truth or or to change their thinking or behavior. Instead, James simply condemns these people and then he speaks of their judgment. And that seems very different to the overall kind of feel and purpose of this letter in which James has been calling believers back from sin, back from double-mindedness, back to the gospel that has saved them. But, But if that is right, if... If for a moment here James's focus shifts to unbelievers, well then the next question is why? Why does he start talking to a different group of people midway through his letter? And the answer I think is that he's not actually talking to them, he's talking more about them. In other words, James's purpose in addressing these, uh, these people is to show the Christian readers what God thinks of their behavior. He wants Christians to overhear God's verdict on the self-indulgent rich. And he does that for two big reasons. The first is to encourage poor believers. Poor believers who are on the receiving end of this self-indulgent, ungodly behavior. We're going to see much more about that next week when he calls them to persevere under suffering. But the second reason which I want us to focus on now is to prevent Christian readers from going down that path. That's been his warning throughout the letter, hasn't it? Don't be double-minded, Christians. Don't be attracted by worldly wisdom, the wisdom that leads away from the gospel. And so James here paints this picture of what worldly wisdom looks like in practice, where it can lead when it's combined with wealth. And he says it produces some horrible results. The first characteristic we see in chapter 5 is that of hoarding. Just look at verse 1. 
Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Here James gives this picture of massive unused wealth. Huge resources that have been stockpiled that have incredible value but aren't being used for anything. And so the result is that they rot, they they go off, they're destroyed by moth and rust. And so just like our life back in chapter 4, here we see that wealth doesn't last forever. It's temporary. And so it's meant to be used, not, not just stored away and left to rot. And that's a big challenge for us, isn't it? It's a big challenge for us living in a culture that that measures a person's success according to how much they own, how much they have managed to accumulate and store up for themselves. It's true, isn't it, that as a person's bank account goes up, so does their respect and their admiration and their position in society. But more than that, our, our society also says that that storing money buys us security. That we need to build up as much as we can in our savings account because, well, that's how we stay in control. That's how we ensure that our plans succeed with our bank account. But James wants us to see that that sort of wisdom is just ungodly. Not that we shouldn't have savings or, or make provision for our family, But the worldly pursuit of wealth for its own sake, he says, is foolish and it is ungodly. Verse 3, he says, your unused and corroded wealth testifies against you. It exposes a heart full of worldly wisdom, a heart that is storing up treasures on earth rather than treasures in heaven. And like I say, that doesn't mean that Christians shouldn't have savings accounts. But it should cause us to question our motives for those savings. It should cause us to ask, what does my bank say about my heart? We've just seen, haven't we, in chapter 4, how our plans should be subject to and shaped by God's will. And here James is saying the same. He's saying, so should your wallet Saving is not ungodly if it's done in humility and for godly purposes. But if it's done purely for selfish reasons, then James says, be warned. Be warned because a day of judgment is coming. Look at verse 5. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. James says, don't be like a turkey in October. A turkey in October is loving life, aren't they? They, they eat and eat and eat. They think that this is just the best thing in the world. They, they indulge themselves on grain all day long, all the grain they could dream of. But as they eat and they get fat, they have no idea they're heading for the slaughterhouse. 
No idea that they'll be in the freezer aisle in a matter of months. And so James says to the rich who live a life of self-indulgence, be warned, be warned. The day of judgment is coming. And when it does, everything that seems so important, so valuable now, will suddenly paint a very different picture. Jesus will return to judge humanity. And on that day, your bank balance and your bucket list will not save you. In fact, it might condemn you. Be warned, says James. The second characteristic he highlights is exploitation. Look at verse 4. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. Uh, James's focus now moves to the, the negligent landowner, the, the businessman who fails to pay a proper wage. Uh, and in James's day, as for many people today, uh, wages meant everything. No wage meant no food for the family. Uh, and so when you're living a, a hand-to-mouth existence, well, your daily wage was essential. It was essential for you, but but not quite so essential for the rich. Those living these extravagant lifestyles, indulging themselves, a, a day's wage, a week's wage was nothing. A, an annoying bit of admin uh, that's easily forgotten or overlooked when paying your staff. And whilst many of us might not be in the position of paying other people's wages, it's still very easy, isn't it, for our money to blind us to the needs of others. Much of uh, the wealth and the comfort that we enjoy in the West, in in this country, is sadly built on cheap labour and unseen suffering of people in sweatshops and factories around the world. Which means as Christians we have to think very, very carefully about how our lifestyle choices, our shopping habits affect the lives of other people. Because as James warns us, these things might not be seen to us. They, they might be in a far-off country that we don't need to think about because we can't see. But the Lord does see them. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. The Bible is very clear. God has a particular concern for the poor and the vulnerable. We've seen that already in this letter. And so we have to take seriously what James is saying here. We are responsible for the way that we use our money. And that means we should do everything that we can to ensure that our choices are not exploiting, harming, or verse 6, even killing innocent people. And so you see, whether it's with our plans or with our money, James says, if you know the good you ought to do and you don't do it, it is sin for you. And so these are serious words from James, aren't they? This is a serious warning. Worldly wisdom can lead to self-sufficient boasting And it can lead to self-indulgent hoarding. 
And the challenge for us is to think about where these things can be seen in our lives. Where is the evidence in my life that worldly wisdom has taken hold? And if worldly wisdom is the problem, then what does James say is the solution? Well, we saw it last week, didn't we? Just look back at chapter 4, verse 6. Chapter 4, verse 6 says this, But he, that's God, gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud but shows favour to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. The remedy to our pride, to our arrogance and our worldliness, is the gospel of grace. It is the good news that as we humbly submit ourselves to God, as we come to him and repent of our selfish desires, as we confess our greed and our lack of concern for others, as we acknowledge the ways that our lives are so often shaped more by the world's wisdom than by God's word, as we confess those things to God, he gives us more grace. Through Christ's death on the cross, he purifies our hearts and he washes our hands. By his spirit, he works in us, changing us from being these double-minded, unstable sinners to single-minded, wholehearted disciples. You see, if we really listen, if we really listen, then James's letter is hard to hear, isn't it? It is hard to hear because it exposes our hearts. It humbles us before the Lord. But the amazing joy of the gospel is that as we are humbled, the Lord lifts us up. As we see and grieve over our sin, he lifts our eyes to the Saviour. And so as one writer puts it, there should be no people more sad and yet more happy than Christians. It is the great paradox of the Christian life that we weep over our sin while singing in astounded joy of our salvation. It is the great paradox of the Christian life that we weep over our sin while singing in astounded joy of our salvation. And so let's pray that we would humble ourselves before the Lord knowing and rejoicing in the fact that he is the one who lifts us up. Let's pray together. We're going to have a moment of quiet just to spend some time thinking and confessing the ways that that worldly wisdom has taken hold and that we look like these people described in this letter.
Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we confess that in so many ways, our hearts and our lives are just like these people described here in James's letter. That as we search our hearts, as we look into the mirror of your word, we see that sin and selfishness lurking deep within. We confess those things to you, our Father. We grieve and mourn over our sin. But we thank and praise you for the gospel of grace. We thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus, who as we humbly come to him, lifts us up by his death and resurrection for us. Father, help us to cling to the cross and to live out of that security, we pray, for his glory. Amen.